This episode's release marks the first month of curated content. We followed threads tying memories together in unusual ways, and there's lots more to come. But now I'm curious, what sticks with you? I'm putting together a sampler to give people a sense of what curated content is, and I'd love to include some of your favorite clips. Please email curatedc at gmail.com or tweet at content show and let me know which stories have made you smile, which ones made you think, which ones made you look at things just a little bit different. In the meantime, this week, adventure awaits. Welcome to Curated Content. Act 1 Take a walk through your earliest memories. Do you remember the first time you knowingly set off into the unknown? Do you remember experiencing a sense of adventure with all of the wonder and excitement that accompanies that word? When I was small, my grandparents lived in a town in the north of Oklahoma called Ponca City. Their neighborhood had once been part of a grove of trees planted on the grounds of oil man E.W. Marlin's estate. Marlin had risen to the peaks of power, holding the office of governor for a time, and was the head of the company that eventually became Conoco, only to have it all come crashing down eventually losing the bulk of his fortune. There was scandal at the story of how Marland had adopted, unadopted, and married a younger woman. This was all set against the background of a sprawling piece of property in Oklahoma's green country, with meticulously kept lawns and stately oaks planted in evenly spaced rows. After Marland's fall, the mansion itself was acquired by the state of Oklahoma, enrolled into the state's park service, and carefully preserved to this day. The land surrounding was sold and turned into neighborhoods, with streets running between the rows of trees and ranch-style homes popping up, each with a stout oak on the property. My grandparents bought one of the homes in the former Marland Forest, and I spent many summers playing in the shade of those trees. My grandfather would give my brother, my cousins, and me a quarter each to fill a coffee can with large acorns dropped by the trees. The oaks were in the front yard. Something more mysterious lay out back. The back fence bordered a gravel alleyway that ran the length of the street, stretching from one end of the street to the other. On one side were the backs of houses, yards populated by sheds and swing sets, laundry lines and charcoal grills. On the other side was a steep drop-off, dotted with scraggly blackjack oaks that had popped up in the decades since the old mansion grounds had last been planted down to a little creek that filled with rainwater runoff any time it stormed. Just on the other side of the creek sat another row of houses, but they seemed to be a world away. 
Joseph Campbell, the man who proposed that world mythologies all followed similar stories in what he termed a monomyth, described the story structure as something he called the hero's journey. It's a handy tool in creative writing, a template for telling a satisfying story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you've seen the original Star Wars or read The Lord of the Rings, you're probably familiar with the hero's journey already. In Campbell's structure, the hero crosses a threshold and enters what Campbell calls the special world. For me, the special world was a gravel alley behind my grandparents' house. There were summer evenings when I'd ask my grandmother if we could go on an adventure. We'd start out the back gate in the dimming light just after dinner. The journey past the back sides of people's homes was like a walk through the flip side of the world, like the upside down, only less sinister. Sometimes we'd encounter creatures from the ravine, once a giant turtle, its back covered in moss, found its way up to the neighborhood. My grandfather used a snow shovel to lift it out of fear that it might snap at his fingers and carried it down to its home territory. By the time we returned, the sky above us would have turned purple and the air would grow thick with fireflies. We came back to the world we knew and it seemed as though magic might have followed us back, even if our quest had only been through a corridor of trash cans and chain-link fence. We still had returned with some tiny sense of wonder. What's out past your fence line? Maybe it's time to find out. Adventure awaits you. Act 2 Every few years, we'd pile into vans and caravan up I-35 to visit family in Minnesota. My parents had their van, as we've discussed, and my grandparents had theirs, and the two would carry a small army of Oklahomans to the land of a thousand lakes. Once there, we would make the rounds, visiting family in St. Peter, in Wilmer, in Fridley, on one visit during my elementary years, we spent a couple of days visiting my aunt and uncle in Woodbury, a Minneapolis suburb. I was fascinated by how each house we visited had a basement, and was thrilled that Aunt Nancy and Uncle Chuck allowed my brother and me to sleep in theirs during our stay. It felt like another world, like a special world knowing that we were actually below the ground in a space larger than most storm shelters in Oklahoma, let alone one that had a fold-out sofa and a television. It was in this basement that my cousin Kelly introduced me to the Three Stooges, and the two of us howled at the VHS adventures of Larry, Moe, and either Curly or Shemp, depending on which tape was in the player. But there was further adventure to be had, a jailbreak in a distant land. My uncle had a computer set up in the basement and introduced us to a game 
called Escape from Rungastan. We sat at the little table as he put the floppy in drive A and booted the game up. It was thrilling to read the prologue, a setup in which the player learns that they're being held in a jail cell in a distant land, awaiting execution at dawn. From that point, the screen shifted to a crude set of vector graphics, simple line drawings showing the cell and its contents. A text prompt appeared at the bottom of the screen, allowing the player the ability to get or look or interact with the environment in any number of ways. There were supposed to be arcade-style levels as well, but I was never good enough to get much further than that cell. I puzzled over Rungastan, fascinated with the idea that I could interact with an imagined world where I wasn't some dorky grade schooler with a haircut that resembled the hairpiece snapped to the head of a Lego man. In Rungastan, I was MacGyver, I was using chewing gum wrappers and paper clips to stage the escape of a lifetime. Except that I never escaped. Truth be told, I never played Escape from Rungastan again, though I did find an emulator and briefly considered trying to beat the game. When I saw a scan of the original artwork, my first time to actually see it, I was struck by the kind of goofy colonialism in the game's packaging, and how, on top of that, I was disappointed to see that the depiction of the hero was something far less Richard Dean Anderson and a lot more Doonesbury's Uncle Duke. I stepped back from it and considered how, by actually attempting to play a crudely programmed game originally designed to fit on a floppy disk, I'd only be trying to recapture something that's faded into the warm glow of memory. It'd be like trying to fit into a t-shirt from college, or eating a sugary cereal that I haven't had since I was 10. I don't think I'll be going back to Rungastan anytime soon better to leave that to warm nostalgia. I do watch Three Stooges videos on occasion, though, and they still make me laugh. I prefer Curly to Shemp. Maybe the game hasn't aged well, but there's a chance that a little bit of the magic followed me up from that Woodbury basement. Adventure is still where you find it, even if it's at a desk next to your aunt's washing machine, below the surface of the earth. Act 3 It's 1986. After the rise and fall of the Atari, there's doubt about the future of home video game systems. It sounds ridiculous now, but there's a moment where the whole enterprise of video games nearly saw its candle extinguished. This was all before the advent of that little gray box. 
my brother and I received a Nintendo for Christmas that year. An 8-bit wonder that came packaged with two controllers, a light gun called a zapper, and a single cartridge. The action set, that was how Nintendo branded this package. Came packaged with that cartridge containing two games, Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, but the documentation also came with a fold-out poster showing tiny screenshots of other games available, though without much context or anything to explain it. They were weird little blocky snapshots with names like Excite Bike and Rad Racer, or the more provocative Metroid. But for me, it was all about The Legend of Zelda. There were mysterious ads featuring a panicked guy roaming about, calling out for Zelda, and naming off the villains. There was the fabled gold cartridge, an unusual bit of decoration that set the cartridge apart from the rest of the product line's industrial gray color scheme. Everything about Zelda sparked curiosity and intrigue well before it ever entered the console in my living room. The real Legend of Zelda, though, was that of its origin. The story goes that its creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, please forgive my pronunciation, was inspired by memories of exploring a garden as a child and venturing down into a cave, feeling the air change around him as his eyes grew accustomed to dim light. If you were to play Super Mario Brothers, his other grand creation, you traveled along a path that was essentially pre-charted. Mario is a side-scroller, taking the player from left to right in each stage of the game. With The Legend of Zelda, however, players were encouraged to explore, to wander, to discover their own path. While there were certain steps that needed to be completed prior to advancement, a raft had to be earned before you could explore a certain dungeon, or a ladder was needed to access another. It was possible to spend hours simply wandering, roaming the fictional kingdom of Hyrule in search of its secrets. Strategies were traded at school. Myths, hints, and gossip about fabled weapons and discoveries yet to be made. That idea of wandering, of questing through a mysterious world, of discovering, was endlessly fascinating to me. If I had been just a little older, if I had had a few more friends, I probably would have been a prime candidate for tabletop gaming. As this was 1986, the idea of a online MMORPG was too far off on the horizon for me to even fathom the idea of wandering a video game world with others. Zelda gave me a world to explore, a place to wander, and a way, even then, to chart my own course. 
even if it was dangerous to go alone. And we were told to carry a rusty brown blade with us. Curated content is recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of the Golden Driller. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you're listening to now. He also performs our interstitial music. Find new episodes of curated content every Monday at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. Your feedback is valuable, and your ratings help others find us. Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com slash modsub, where you'll find archived shows, show notes, and information about other projects. You can also choose to support curated content through our donor portal. Every little bit helps. Learn more at the website. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at content show, or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and the unexpected threads running through our brains encoding. This concludes our visit to the mixed-up files deep within the memory banks. Be well and stay curious. <laughs>